crystal lattices are natural prisms and lenses. They reflect and refract energies, not just light, but consciousness and soul and, and other things we can't quite quantify. So part of what makes that relationship individual is the fact that it's reflecting back to you your own stuff. You're listening to Let's Be Omnist, the show where we are celebrating spiritual diversity, one truth and one story at a time. I'm your host, Michael Anthony, spiritual life coach and intuitive reader from thedivinerlife.com. Welcome back to season two, episode three. I am so excited to have you here to be grooving right along through season two. Today, I'm bringing you a topic which, to no surprise, has been highly requested since day one. Today, we are talking about crystals. Crystals have certainly been having a moment over the last few years. They are no longer just for the New Age or the metaphysical community. People all across the world are picking up their favorite crystals as jewelry, home decor, and honestly, anything else that they can carve out of stone. I'm very lucky to have an extremely knowledgeable guest on the topic with me today, and his name is Nicholas Pearson. You may know Nicholas from some of his many books, including The Seven Archetypal Stones, Crystal Healing for the Heart, Crystals for Karmic Healing, and his last release to hit the shelves, Stones of the Goddess. I'm excited to say that his collection doesn't end there, and he does have a brand new book that is currently on pre-order and launches on February 11th. It is titled Crystal Basics, The Energetic Healing and Spiritual Power of 200 Gemstones. You heard me correctly, I said 200 gemstones. Listen, I am very lucky to have taken an early peek through this book, and I have never seen so much powerful information in one book before. I strongly believe that, mm, actually, I'm going to say that I know that it's going to be the must-have for anybody interested in crystals, whether you're a beginner or um, someone who has been working with them for a very long time. This book is needed on your shelf. Nicholas has been immersed in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for more than 20 years. He began teaching crystal workshops in high school and then later studied mineral science at Stetson University's Gillespie Museum. He is a certified teacher of UC Reiki Rioho, and he also teaches crystal and Reiki classes throughout the United States. On today's episode, we talk about how crystals bridge the gap between science and spirituality and how you can begin working with crystals more in your everyday life. With all that said, grab a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, a cup of whatever you like, because in the spirit of truth and honesty, here is my conversation with Nicholas Pearson. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to have you on my show. How are you doing? I am having a wonderful night. Thank you so much for having me on. And I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we started chatting. Same. I love everything that you do. I've already told the listeners your entire bio, which by the way, so impressed by the amount of things that you've already done um, in your time here on earth. It is shocking how much you have produced. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. You know, I just... Uh, um, it's, it's a matter of living my, my personal legend, as we might reference The Alchemist um, by Paulo Coelho. It's, uh, I'm just here on earth to be a mouthpiece for the mineral kingdom, and it, it works out easy that way for me, relatively speaking. 
I am so glad you already said the words mineral kingdom because we are going to talk so much about crystals. I hope you're excited because I am. But before we do that, um, I really want the guests and the listeners to have the opportunity to just kind of get to know you a little bit more. So we're going to play a fun game of two truths and a lie. Are you ready? I hope so. Perfect. So just in case, um, for those uh, listeners that maybe don't know how this works, you're going to tell me two truths and one lie about yourself, and then I have to guess which one is the lie. Okay. So um, here, here are my, my three. Uh, I have a degree in geology. I am profoundly colorblind, and I speak four languages. Ooh. Okay. So I know that you studied mineral science. I don't know if you got a degree related to. So that one's kind of tough, especially because you said geology and not mineral science. But I'm going to say that the lie is that you're colorblind. You know, you were on the right track at the beginning. I, I actually oh. don't have a yeah, I, I don't have a degree in, in anything. That's a long story, but I began pursuing mineral science and geology. Uh, and then, you know, life took me in a lot of other directions. So I never completed that degree track, but I am quite colorblind. That is so crazy. Only because I have read your, your book, uh, The Stones for the Goddess. And I know you talk a lot about color in there, but I'm just really surprised that with the work you do, that you uh, are colorblind. Yeah, it's always this really fun kind of conversation to have when I'm like meeting new students or clients and they want me to help with mineral ID. I oftentimes can get everything I need to know from all the other information that a stone will give me except its color. But then on the rare occasion that I really need that last little bit, I'll just say to them, hey, so fun question. Just tell me what color it is and then I'll tell you what rock you've got here. And people always think it's a trick question. And like, no, I just genuinely don't see the color. And it's either A or B. And if you tell me what color it is, I'll know if it's A or B. I know there are so many different types of color blindness, And I'm not even going to pretend that I know the types. So when you say colorblind, do you mean like, I think red-green is one of them? Or like mm -hmm. color is just totally unknown to you? Yeah, so um, I have one of the types of red-green color blindness. Um, it's, uh, you know, strong enough to keep me out of the military. I'd never be a pilot and that's fine. Those are not things <laughs> I ever had in my, in my life path. Just no, no interest to go either of those routes, but you know, it's, it's never as simple as just red and green are the two colors I can't see. You could say it's not so black and white as that, but, I'm oh, just, uh, but so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how much we can learn about rocks and minerals when it comes to all of their other physical, optical chemical and mechanical properties apart from color. Color is like the icing on the cake, but it is probably the least important part of the equation as far as identification goes when it comes to their energy. It is one of the, the least important components of a crystal's energy. I really love that you're saying all that because one of the things that really drew me to your work with crystals in particular is that you approach crystals not only from this spiritual energetic space, but you also come at it with such a scientific point of view. In every single one of your books, sometimes I'm like, okay, this is great information. I am terrible at science, but suddenly I'm interested. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you really draw me into both sides of that world. Do you mind me asking like, where did this start for you? Was it more of a, the spiritual connection or the, the scientific side of it that brought you to it? Um, you know, I don't think those two components have ever been separate in my life. My 
my attraction to the world of stone began super young. I was that little kid who picked up rocks everywhere he went. So it could be somewhere glamorous, like a family vacation to the mountains. Like we don't have mountains in Florida. So that's a big deal. I want to take a piece of that home with me, but it could also be something like the parking lot at the grocery store, uh, gravel driveway, landscaping by the community pool. Um, if it, if it just spoke to me, it, it had to come with me. And I often had rocks in my pocket and backpack and anywhere else that I could at the time. And it must have been something that was uh, observable from a distance because my grandfather gave me my very first piece of quartz and that stone changed my life. And I've always been kind of a science nerd. My, my dad has a background in science. My, my life path has involved a lot of science, but the moment I had that, that mineral specimen, this piece of clear quartz from hot springs, Arkansas, I, I was transfixed by how mystical it was. There was just something mm. holy and otherworldly about it so that, you know, my tiny little eight-year-old brain couldn't quite wrap itself around. I didn't have the <laughs> lexicon to really comprehend the mysteries of this stone, but I, I could sit with it for hours and, you know, marvel how light was transformed moving through it. It had three main points on it and, and looking at how the three points were all different, but somehow similar, you know, the regularity of the angles is the same regardless of, you know, the exact specimen you're looking at when it comes to something like quartz for the most part. And then, you know, I'd go on to start collecting rocks and minerals from there in earnest. And that is an obsession that has never left me. And there's no 12-step program for it yet. And I'm really <laughs> glad about that. Hopefully they don't develop one because I personally would have to sign up pretty early. I, I would just live in denial. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that both the science and spiritual side of it kind of have always been apart together. Where do you think that your approach to like a more spiritual path in general, whether it be crystal related or otherwise really started for you? Mm, you know, it started at the library. My dad was raised super Catholic. Uh, so Catholic, in fact, that I was not raised anything at all. He'd had enough of parochial school and, you know, catechism classes and all of that fun stuff. So we didn't go to church when I was a kid. Instead, every other weekend, we'd go to the library. We'd return all the books that I checked out. And I would always try to negotiate for more books than my dad told me I was allowed to have. And um, for, for many years of my life, I honestly believed that there was like a four book limit. The library only let you check out four books at a time. <laughs> Turns out my, my dad was just trying to keep me focused, <laughs> you know, have me check out just the amount of books I was going to read. And then, you know, later on in life, it got to the point where he's like, are you really going to read these four huge books in two weeks? And like five days later, we'd be returning them so I could get more. One week, it might be something like science. It might be history. It might be folklore. I've always had this profound attraction to fairy tales, mythology, and folk tales from, you know, all the world's cultures. And one thing that kind of struck out to me really early on was that the the language of science and the language of myth are just two different sets of vocabulary to describe the exact same phenomena in the world. It's it's mm. just a human attempt at understanding something bigger than us. And um, I started to draw those parallels pretty young, although I might not have gone very deep with it. You know, when you're eight, 10, 12 years old, you, you only have access to certain kinds of literature, really. But that's something that's always kind of stuck with me. And I was searching for answers that, you know, my peers were already being given in their kind of religious upbringings. And where other families went to church on weekends, my dad and I went to like the Cathedral of Learning. We went to the, the library. Ooh. It was this wonderful experience. 
That is so, so beautiful um, that you just referred to a library as a cathedral of learning. You know, it really is, though. It's, it's a holy place. When when there are that many words under one roof, things transform. Our, our minds open. It's, it's an act of alchemy to learn. And I am forever changed by that. So I started kind of sampling from the world's buffet of religions. And um, early on, I, in my really rebellious teenage phase, I, are you ready for my great acts of rebellion? Be- of course. Rebellion, I would stay up too late at night to read. And when everyone would clear out of the house, I would meditate. That, that was it. I, I was clearly a very wild kid. That, that might have changed. I got a little bit more colorful in college, but that's, I think that's a conversation <laughs> for a different podcast. But I, I found myself attracted to a lot of earth-based spiritual paths, like neo-pagan mm-hmm. movements. I had easy access to those at bookstores. Um, I have always loved Eastern religions, and it's it's hard to lump them all under one umbrella because they can be so diverse. And those are things that have stuck with me. And you know, as as the years have gone on, I've kind of come to appreciate the more mystical Gnostic side of of the Christian mysteries as well. So, um, I really love that your podcast is called "Let's Be Omnist" because that's actually one of the words I would use to identify myself. Yeah, um, I really I look for that kernel of truth that is beyond the world of dualism, the world of separation, the world of comparison, you know, absolute truth is ineffable. So I think everybody down here is doing the best they can with the tools they've got. And, you know, maybe I have different tools in my toolbox. Maybe I use different words to approach that absolute truth in this relative world than someone else. But I think if we really devote ourselves to whatever our practice is going to be, we're going to get there. It's, it's amazing when you listen to hard scientists talk about the unimaginable things that they witness in a laboratory or in the field. They have this air of holiness about them. Even though this isn't religion for them, it still can be deeply spiritual to look at things like numbers and data if you do it with a totally invested heart and mind. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I love, like rewinding a little bit, you had mentioned both science and spirituality tend to like they're really ultimately doing the same thing. They're trying to explain the unexplainable. And when you said that, I kind of pictured like two sides of land where two people are building a bridge. And I think we're at a point now in our current day and age where that bridge gap is closing closer and closer. It's almost so seamless, right? Like science every day is coming out with things that some group somewhere is like our religion, our belief, our faith, whatever it may be, has been saying that forever. We told you it's real. (laughs) So I love that you're slowly bridging that gap. You're really doing the work, I think. Well, thank you. I want to talk more about one other thing you said too, where you mentioned you're talking about the crystal you got from your grandfather as a kid and the points were similar, but different. It's a phrase that you used. And I read in one of your books where you mentioned that you might have two pieces of the same kind of crystal, but their consciousness might be different or like their soul could be different. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's start by way of analogy. Let's take any two human beings, you know, pick them up from anywhere around the world, opposite sides of the planet, you know, next door neighbors. I mean, fundamentally, we have more or less the same genome. We're made out of the same ingredients. We have a lot of common experience, but you'd be hard pressed to find two totally identical people anywhere on earth. You know, part of that is down to our internal landscape, you know, what's happening within our heart, our mind, our soul. And it's not just a product of our external world, although there's definitely relationship there. And the same holds true for all 
levels of consciousness, whether we're looking at it in a you know biological kind of sense, or whether we're looking at it in maybe a more metaphorical or spiritual sense when it comes to things like you know, plants and stones. So, you know, maybe you have a favorite piece of rose quartz from Brazil and someone knows how much you love rose quartz. And this one is a a really nice medium shade of pink. And so they get you a piece of rose quartz that was dug out of a mine in Georgia. And it's, it's jelly-like. It's almost, um, you know, not quite totally clear, but it's quite translucent and uh, a different shade of pink. And even though they're fundamentally the same thing, there are going to be optical differences that you can see and assess with your own eyes, but there's also going to be energetic differences. So I like to think there's a big umbrella for each each variety of stone. That umbrella consciousness is what unites them all. But then when we find any two things under that umbrella, they're still individuations of that greater light, just like we are individuations from source. So, you know, two people can pick up two different rocks and have markedly different energies that they perceive or, you know, healing attributes that they're going to assign to it. And that's why you can, you know, pick up all of the crystal authors books of the world and, and nobody exactly agrees on every single detail about every single stone. There's a lot of commonality, but there's still something different to be had. That definitely makes sense to me because I think that there have been times, you know, especially in the metaphysical community where you sit down and you talk to somebody about, oh, your favorite crystal, or, oh, I love that you have this. And you might mention to them what you think they have it for, or like what healing they're using it for, what, you know, whatever it may be. And they will come out of left field and say, oh, no, no, I use it for something completely different. And I've never really thought about how that could come from the soul or the consciousness or whatever it may be from that crystal that they've received that maybe you didn't receive from a separate piece. So it's really interesting. It is. And you know, there's there's a, a two-way mirror here. Not only is that individual piece of stone reflecting something unique to us that comes from within itself that's maybe different from another example of it, but crystal lattices are natural prisms and lenses. They reflect and refract energies, not just light, but consciousness and soul and, and other things we can't quite quantify. So part of what makes that relationship individual is the fact that it's reflecting back to you your own stuff. So maybe the reason you might have a strong opinion about rhodonite that differs from someone else is because rhodonite's showing your own stuff to you and your baggage is different than mine. And that's that's just the, the simplest way we can put it. That's the nature of being human. No matter how common our experiences can be, there's still something that is unique to you. And part of that relational experience we have with stones is is really kind of digging through our own junk. Mm. Well, I'm going to need to get some more crystals then because I got some more junk to (laughs) to (laughs) unload into some crystals. Um, But you said a word that's really interesting to me. You said my relationship might be different. And I know that I've seen before that you mentioned, you know, like building a relationship with crystals. How, like if you had to describe to someone who's never been in this world before, how would you tell someone is a good way to build a relationship with their crystal stones, minerals? Start by treating it like a a new acquaintance you've just met. So maybe you are totally new to Tiger's Eye. And you could be a creepy stalker and like read all about Tiger's Eye in every book there ever was. It's like looking at all their social media profiles and like memorizing things about Tiger's Eye. But that's not the same thing as sitting down and having a conversation with Tiger's Eye. So to do that, 
means holding space, having no expectation, no specific agenda. You know, imagine if every time you met a, a new person, a new potential friend, you had like a checklist of things you needed them to be capable of doing before mm. you even got to know them. And so we have this very prescriptive crystal culture where we kind of approach crystal healing and, and crystal energy as X stone affects Y condition in our lives. And that removes relationship altogether. I think what really happens is person A plus crystal X work together to heal the patterns beneath Y condition. But those patterns are not necessarily the same for all of us, and therefore the symptoms will manifest differently. So, you know, far better than looking up whatever stone is ideal for arthritis or a broken ankle or just bad luck is sitting down and getting to know the tools that are already in your toolbox and seeing how you can co-create together. And we do that first and foremost by just being, you know, just observe, just hold space. And you don't, it doesn't have to be a formal meditation practice. My favorite thing to give new crystal lovers to do is find a quiet place, natural light if possible, turn off all distractions and just marvel at how amazing this, this gemstone is. Look at how it interacts with light, feel the weight of it, get a tactile sense of what the surface textures are like. Obviously, if it's sharp, don't hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And just become aware of the impressions that arise within you as you start that relationship with the stone. That's not all necessarily the stone doing the work. A lot of that is just the stone reflecting to you what might be yours. But as you sit with the same stone over time, you're going to see how those patterns might have certain common threads and how they might differ. Those common threads are probably going to indicate the crystal's mission. The things that differ are what it's reflecting back to you that's your own stuff. That's really interesting. As you were talking about all of that, I just kept thinking about relationships with other people. And I was just really trying to filter it through the concept of having a relationship with somebody else. And you said something that made me think about how you're told in a relationship, like you have to know yourself and be confident in yourself before you present yourself to, you know, a connection with somebody else. You have to know what you want and what you're doing. Um, So it sounds like what you're saying is the person using that stone really has to know themselves and like, what are you really looking for? So are you really looking for a stone that fixes bad luck or are you looking for something that maybe will help you with the habits that you have that cause the bad luck? Do you know what I mean? I don't know exactly what you said, but it's like a deeper meaning than just, oh yeah, people say this is good for bad luck. So I won't be clumsy anymore. Yeah, that's that's honestly like the mainstay of of my practice when I when I work with people one on one is like trying to just peel the layers of the onion back. It there's so much surface level prescriptive crystal information out there, but no two people necessarily have the exact same patterns influencing their luck or their relationship with money or their relationship with love or their physical body. Even even when it comes to like conventional medicine, two people who have similar symptoms might require totally different modes of treatment. And although I'm certainly not a physician and this isn't medicine in the classical sense, it's, it's a similar paradigm. Just mm-hmm. because the surface level stuff might appear similar, we can't just say, oh, well, then clearly you need rose quartz for this and tiger's eye for that and a little bit of jade here. We have to look at like what's driving those patterns, not what is the symptom, what is the end result, but what is the causal level mechanism. And that's what I like to do with crystals. When we look deeper than just what is the end result, find out what is driving results. And that's why we can read two different books and see two different influences from the same stone, because those tend to just be focused on end products rather than the whole process. 
Mm. Did you say when you're working with a client or somebody for crystal healing? Um, not necessarily just crystal healing. Um, I, I work part-time in a, in a local occult metaphysical store. So, you know, there's a, a lot of teaching on the sales floor when I'm doing classes, when people write to me and correspond with me, um, looking for crystal advice. So I don't do as much um, like clinical crystal work, we could say, as I once did because um, the demands on my schedule are very different mm. um, than they once used to be. And I also don't have a dedicated space for it. But, you know, I do a lot of, we could say more educational or like coaching style approaches rather than the, the actual laying on of stones. Super super excited about um, empowering other people to do that work for themselves. So it starts with getting them to think about crystals, not mm. just look for the magic bullet because no crystal is a magic bullet. Right. Okay. That's still really cool that you take the time out of your clearly busy schedule to <laughs> chat with people and coach them and push them to find what they need for themselves. Yeah. And, and a big part of that is finding the right stone for the condition or the situation. So, I mean, you're right on the money there, but it's, it's almost never as simple as, you know, I, I need money. What crystal brings me money? Like what's, what's really influencing this pattern here? Is it, is it a lack of willpower? Is it a lack of follow through? Are you a good idea person, but you don't know how to focus on bringing those to fruition? Or is it, really just a matter of like, this is a you know, generational pattern that you've inherited and how do we tackle something that's much bigger than just you? So different, different stones are going to give us different leverage on those kinds of patterns there. So that's why we always have to look deeper than just carry citrine for money or, you know, carry some pyrite for wealth. We have to really look at why. So even though there are so many factors that go into, you know, deciding on which crystals and stones work for you. Do you have like, let's say a handful of favorites or like go-to crystals that you would say, if you're new to this, you should definitely have these nearby you? Hmm. You know, I definitely have favorites for me. Um, a lot of the work that I do, it, it seems that whatever, whatever field we're in, we, we always tend to attract people that are on the same wavelength as us. So, um, you know, stones that come up very often for my students and clients might include things like rhodonite and lapidolite and lapis lazuli. Some of my favorite tools are maybe not the gentlest and not the most beginner friendly, but, you know, I think that that kind of comes to the territory of having done this work for like 25 years now. So, um, you know, maybe the things that I keep really close to my heart and, and close to my energetic space aren't things that I like pull off the shelf for everybody, but you know, there's always someone who, who needs that energy. Okay. So let me rephrase my question then. What would you say is your absolute favorite crystal? Maybe even just right now, because I'm sure it changes sometimes. <laughs> it, it does. You know, I have, I have like the textbook answer of what my favorite crystal always will be because it's just so charming and enigmatic, but then like the stone I'm doing the most work with right now is rhodonite. So um, rhodonite is that manganese silicate. It's usually kind of pinkish. Sometimes it can be like this really intensely bright red color. On, on the cover of my new book, Crystal Basics, I actually put my favorite piece of rhodonite. The design team at my publisher's house had no idea how I feel about this specimen. And there it is on the cover of the book. So it's, uh, it's this really profound stone of emotional mastery. As we work with this stone, it gives us leverage against the the anxieties, the stressors, the, the emotional tides that feel like they're going to sweep us away. And it drops an anchor 
And it helps us return the breath to the body in the midst of crisis or challenges so we can be more present with whatever it is. Um, you know, the thing about emotions is they have to be moving. And so if we try to like, you know, dam the river, eventually we cause more damage when the water level surges enough to surpass that. Mm -hmm. So this is a stone that kind of allows us to embrace those changing tides and then come back and stay centered. Um, Rodenite also kind of draws out our, our innermost skills and talents to really help us find the tools we need to navigate life better. So, um, I, I would say my my love of roadnite started on like symptom level. I have an anxiety and, and panic disorder, and roadnite is so good at helping me kind of keep a handle on that. Mm. But the longer I've worked with roadnite on a very intimate, like daily level, um, the more I've realized that this pretty pink stone has become one of my favorite allies for the deep stuff in life. I absolutely love roadnite, so I'm so excited that that's the one that you picked. I think if you asked any of my clients who have been with me for a really long time, they will tell you that it was probably one of the first things <laughs> that I ever suggested yeah. to them because I do mm. talk to so many people about very similar things. So I'm happy to hear that I've been suggesting it for similar reasons because that was one of the ones where I never really looked it up in a book. I was just kind of like, this is what it feels like to me. So I'm really happy to hear that I didn't mess that up all these years. Oh, <laughs> I know that you, sorry, you just said that you work with it daily. Do you mind me asking what kind of that practice looks like for you? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the simplest ways that I will connect and co-create with crystals is kind of passively. Um, so it might be, a, you know, a little token stone in my pocket or maybe a, a strand of therapeutic grade rodenite around my neck, but I will carry it with me, not every day, but but most days. And when I do that, I try to be as mindful as possible at the beginning of that day. So, you know, if it, whether it's going in my pocket, around my wrist, on my neck, I pause for a moment and connect and just kind of hold space for the consciousness of that stone to show up and say hi while I'm there to show up and say hi, rather than just meaninglessly kind of tucking it away and, and intending that it'll do all the work it needs to do. You know, mm. we work best with conscious direction with sincere interaction. And it's the same with our relationship with stones. You know, roadnite is such a, a multifaceted tool. In fact, all crystals are just as all humans are. I mean, you can't, you can't just describe us in a few short words and call it the end of the day. So in order to know like what skill set it has that is the most applicable to any particular situation, we, we have to be like in communication there. And that's not always with words. Sometimes it's just with feelings. Sometimes it's with, you know, the, the frequency we're putting out there and it will match us on that level. So that's probably my, my most passive way that I work with crystals on a daily basis. But, you know, it might be through maybe more focused meditation. It might be something like road night. Uh, today I've been taking it as a gemstone elixir. I've had a, a really long action-packed day. And so it's one of those stones that kind of gives me the stamina and fortitude to make it through a long day like that. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's one way that I was able to enjoy that, that energy. Okay. Crystal elixirs is one that's super interesting for me because, you know, way back in the day when I first fell into crystals, it was when some of the like crystal water bottles were hitting the market and all of these things were happening. And I am one to do a lot of research and I unfortunately fell into the wrong research about, you know, <laughs> toxins and things in the water and what are you drinking and being careful. And so I just immediately was like, oh, nope, not doing that. I'm going to drink the wrong one, the wrong one. How do you do your crystal elixirs? 
Well, you know, first and foremost, I'm going to start with my public service announcement, and it's twofold. (laughs) The first one is a lot... (laughs) Uh, a lot of the the cautionary lists that we see online um, that tell us what crystals will poison us if we put them directly into our water are not written by people who have a firm understanding of mineral science or even basic chemistry. So if one ingredient in a stone is toxic, they will often put it on this list and say, you, you, you shouldn't be anywhere near this. Let's use a really good example of corundum, which is um, the mineral name for ruby and sapphire. And it's an aluminum oxide. And you know, too much aluminum causes things like dementia and it, it influences our, our entire well-being. But if we could put ruby or sapphire into water and extract the aluminum from it, it would not have the tenacity that we know these gems to have. It's the second hardest naturally occurring mineral that we've got on earth. It's, it's super durable. That aluminum is not coming out unless you are heating it to temperatures that are unimaginable. So um, a lot of these lists are, are cautious in ways they don't need to be. However, mm-hmm. the flip side of this is if you do not know the, the chemistry side of it, the mineral science side of it, of course, don't put it directly into your drinking water. There are so many indirect ways for infusing uh, and imprinting waters with crystal energy that you, you never need to put yourself at risk. So when in doubt, leave it out. Okay. I like that. Um, maybe it would be better that people kind of read about it in your new and upcoming book, Crystal Basics. But do you have like a suggested, like what's your favorite way to do a crystal elixir? You know, generally I I go for less is more. So um, the real simple infusions that we can do, like I have a Brita pitcher that I filter my tap water with for making tea or just drinking or, or anything else. And I keep shungite and aquamarine in it at all times. And they're like my favorite ways to just energize my water and add structure and vitality back to this otherwise kind of not super vibrationally alive water that comes out of the tap. And that's that's like my everyday kind of infusion. But if we do like a more concentrated method, it, it's going to depend on the stone itself. You know, if something is water safe and non-toxic, then it's going to go directly in that water. If it's also sunlight stable, it'll go in direct light for an appropriate length of time. You know, something like kunzite will fade in a matter of hours. But something like smoky quartz or ruby is going to maintain its color in in sunlight. So um, those are things that could have nice long infusions. And then you can either consume directly from there, once you've removed the stone, of course, or you can add a preservative and bottle it and then treat it kind of homeopathically, similar to flower essences, and potentize it through the process of dilution. So that's, that's something I, I rarely get around to with my crystal elixirs these days, but it, it's an option. I've definitely done it in the past, um, but for all the other tools in my toolbox that I've got, it's, it's one where I don't often go through all of those stages of potentization and bottling. That is such a process. And if I'm honest, I'm a lazy person. So I'm going to go with your original suggestion and I'm going to drop some in my Brita. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that that's so funny to just imagine someone coming over to your house and opening your refrigerator and saying like, oh, there's crystals in your water. It's a fun I, topic. <laughs> Conversation I'm, yeah, I'm fairly sure that anyone that, that knows me well enough to be invited to my home would just expect that. True. I guess strangers aren't just opening your refrigerator. So that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> So what other things do you do? I know you have an amazing collection of books. What else do you do on like a regular basis for like sharing your crystal information? Do you do other workshops and anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, writing actually began as an extension of my love for teaching. 
So um, ever since I was in high school, I began teaching crystal workshops and they were like super informal and chill in the beginning. And I can't tell you how stressed I was the first, oh, I don't know, like 24 times I had to do it. Um, but I just, I love being able to share all of, all of the amazing things that you know, rocks and minerals can do for us. So early on, I began teaching. From there, I kind of got like a, a really intensive, it's almost like boot camp of mineral science when I started working in a an earth science museum. So I got to do more of the deeper work with, with the sciencey side of it. And that, that really has influenced my, my teaching. So more often than not on any given weekend, I'm somewhere teaching sometimes on weekdays as well. So, um, I travel throughout the world. This year is my first time traveling overseas to teach and it was this wonderful experience. So I, I tried to get all over the place. What is your, if you have one, what is your favorite like topic or subsection of crystal healing that you like to talk about? Mm. You know, I don't think I've ever been asked this before. Ooh, I like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I really love working at that sort of real beginner's level and teaching people how to go deeper than just that prescriptive kind of crystal use. I mm. love it exploring how the formation process, the crystal structure, the chemical composition is going to influence crystal energy. And I love giving people like hands-on tools for, for exploring these kinds of things. But one of my, my most fun kind of like really narrowly focused topics in the world of crystals is working with crystal skulls. I have a, we'll just say a, a, a healthy collection of them. <laughs> Okay. Um, including including a handful that are, are relatively old. And that started as like, I read one book about crystal skulls. And so I got one modern, it's very small crystal skull carving. And well, now there's significantly more than one in my life. And um, they're just, it's, it's so fascinating. I, I think that the crystal skulls are this like worldwide phenomenon, you know, no single culture carved them. There are far fewer that have come from provenance, you know, respectable documented digs than, than those that have not come from such places. And yet they're all over the place. So um, it's, it's a really exciting topic to explore. You said that you have a healthy collection of crystal skulls. <laughs> But I'm curious in general, so we'll just, we'll cut out not just crystal skulls, but crystals in general. Is it possible for you to put a number on how many crystal minerals and any of that that you own for yourself? Um, no. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, like I could probably give you like a weight estimate or like total mass, but I don't think I could count the, the number of specimens because... You know, when I when I teach classes or if I do something like crystal grids or you know, if we're doing like a big group kind of experience or something, I'm gonna have tons of examples of the same rock to pass out in class or to to use for an elaborate mandala made out of stones. So um, I don't really quantify my collection in, in that kind of terms. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, these days something has to really speak to me for me to be moved to get it, or it has to be like really practical, like, oh, I'm going to use this in my next book. And this is going to be a much better photo than the one I've already got. Um, that's my justification for a lot of purchases these days. Mm, okay. Well, it is business justified. So you purchase whatever you want. <laughs> I My reasoning is usually, well, this one um, is pretty and it's the nicest one in this pile. So it's coming home with me because it deserves to. I don't know. Like the, I make things up when I buy crystals. I'm just imagining, I'm sorry. I'm just imagining like a whole shelf or shelves 
or a room because I know, for example, like I have an unhealthy book obsession Uh. and sometimes I just get them because they have a pretty cover, but like, I don't have a justifiable reason to purchase them. Whereas you have a reason. So I'm just, I'm floored at thinking about how many you could possibly have. Um, so anyway, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I'm super interested in another topic that you talked about in your last book, Stones of the Goddess. And you talk about how crystals are related to the divine feminine, which is something I'm personally obsessed with. Can you talk a little bit about like that book and what really inspired that process? Yeah. So... This was a book that really insisted upon being written. I had other plans that I was really well engaged with. And um, it was like the universe tapped me on the shoulder and like gave me this and I, this idea. And I said to the universe, that's really nice. Thank you. But I'm too busy here. <laughs> and the gentle tap on the shoulder got a little bit more aggressive. And so I, I would sit down and just kind of take notes about correspondences between specific gems and specific goddesses. And these correspondences eventually evolved and grew. So I started with things that were really obvious that come from history, um, like historical allies between the, the mineral kingdom and the realm of the great divine feminine. And then I started to, you know, be creative about it and, and think about modern stones that had no ancient provenance and how they might be connected to specific goddesses. And then, you know, if you read enough new agey books on crystals, people start connecting that as well. So it really just began as this list of this goddess can be represented by or connected through these stones. And as that began to grow, I started to see patterns. There were a lot of stones that came up for a lot of different goddesses. There were a lot of different types of stones, you know, things that were related in in more than just a cursory kind of sense that pointed to a bigger picture, bigger themes and one of those themes is this idea of the reemergence of the divine feminine. As we look at these newer finds of minerals that are coming out all over the world, they are almost representative of new faces or new facets of the great goddess. And we, we have been collectively, as, as a human race, experiencing a, a pendulum that has pushed too far on the side of divine masculine and not mm-hmm. a really healthy and whole and wonderful expression of the divine masculine. We're talking something that is fragmented and is broken. And um, because it doesn't have its divine complement, cannot really totally be full. So um, our, our job collectively is to swing the pendulum back toward center. Of course, we're going to overshoot it, but eventually it comes back to center. And I think the tools that we need to do that are found in the world all around us. Really, we don't need any external tools, but crystals are catalysts, which means that they lower the amount of energy or effort uh, required to uh, achieve a desired outcome. So when we work with something that catalyzes that process so beautifully, so articulately, we can really get there so much faster. And I, I think what we're seeing with this rise in like new waves of feminism and new ways of just kind of uh, approaching the old toxic outdated patterns and trying to build more compassionate, more loving, more responsible patterns on a social and spiritual and psychological level. That is the work of the great mother in the here and now. And that's really what kind of drove this book to come into being. Mm. All of that is so beautiful. And I'm just over here nodding my head. Yes. Like I could not agree with you more. 
what I really love is something that you mentioned about how that pendulum is really swung towards the divine masculine in a fragmented and broken kind of way. Um, because I've had other guests on the show who have expressed the same thing and even about how it's not even necessarily that the divine masculine in and of itself is not the problem, but it's specifically about how we've kind of hand-selected what we want from mm. that divine ma- uh, divine masculine and really haven't balanced it out with um, that divine feminine or the other good parts of <laughs> the divine masculine even. And I think that in your book, I mean, you have an entire section about meeting the goddess. And honestly, I just fell like face first into that section of your book. And I think I reread it like twice. I just kept, cause I was like, this is so great. There's just so many amazing points that you make in there about connecting with the divine and really like who she is. And um, so I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. I do want to ask you before I let you go, if you had to share with the listeners one piece of advice that has really stuck out to you the most in all of your work, and you've got like 25 years to filter through here, but if there was one thing that you could pass on to somebody, either learning about crystals or connecting with the divine feminine or whatever it may be, what would that piece of advice be? I've had some really wonderful mentors and teachers and guides along the way. So there's, there's a lot of wisdom that has been passed on to me. But I think one thing that helps us, regardless of our, our, the, the flavor of our spirituality or the exact shape that it takes, is that you know, ultimately we have to remember that the great mysteries are universal. They are simple. And they are ineffable. We cannot put them into words. So no matter how hard we try in this relative world, we, we fail to express the totality of absolute truth. And our job is to fail anyway, to just keep trying. Mm, that is great. You speak with such clear intention and there's like such a pure tone to everything that you say, it's the best way that I can explain it. It honestly makes me feel like I need to go out and buy enough crystals to take a bath in because it's clearly <laughs> working for you. <laughs> but you know, and here's here's the real myth there. Like, let's let's not worry about the quantity of our crystals, but the quality of the relationship we have the, with the ones that are already in our lives. Touche. I hear you. I will treat my crystals better. I will take them out of their little box on the shelf and I will make sure to work with them more and more every day. (laughs) Yeah, take them out for lunch, get to know them, let them get to know you. It'll be great. Done. All right. I've got a lot of relationship building to do. If the listeners want to follow you, find you, become your best friend, what is the best way to keep in touch with you? Well, um, I'm, you can find me in most places as The Luminous Pearl, whether that's on Facebook or on Instagram, or my website is www.theluminouspearl. Um, the website will be going under an overhaul. Hopefully by the time this airs, it'll be full of my complete calendar of events, and um, you'll be able to find out where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be doing. Uh, 2020 is looking like it's going to be full of new locations for me to visit, to teach, and to travel, and to share. Um, there's going to be a lot of exciting things on the horizon in the near future. So, you know, reach out if you've got crystal related questions, Reiki related questions, life related questions, I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. 
Awesome. Well, I will make sure to share all of your information in the episode notes. And I know that, again, I'm personally excited to attend some of your workshops and get a copy of your new book on my shelf. So I will make sure that I share all that information. Just spread all the love. (laughs) Thank you again so much for being here. I appreciate you being on the show and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. And I look forward to catching you at the lecture. All right, all right. That was my conversation with Nicholas Pearson. Unfortunately, I didn't get to attend that Crystal Skull lecture that he mentioned, but it was for an amazing reason, and that's because the room was completely packed, they were at maximum capacity, and the building physically could not allow anyone else to attend the lecture. So I'm so serious when I tell you, if you get a chance to see Nicholas teach in person, or you get to hear one of his lectures, or you get to learn more about him, please make sure that you do so. I highly, highly recommend it. He has got so much more knowledge than anyone could fit into just one podcast. So if you'd like to check out more of Nicholas's work, you can head over to his website, theluminouspearl.com, or you can follow him on Instagram at theluminouspearl. If you want to get his brand new must-have book titled Crystal Basics, there is a link in the show notes below where you can purchase it directly from the publisher. Heads up, Nicholas will also be featured in February's issue of Diviner Magazine. That comes out the first Saturday of every month, available exclusively on thedivinerlife.com slash club divine. Anyway, while you're out there surfing around, make sure that you take the time to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find me at The Diviner Life. Of course, you'll also want to click the subscribe button wherever it is that you're listening in from so you can be notified of any of the newest episodes every week when they launch. Next week, you can tune in to hear my conversation with a gentleman named Cooper Kaminsky, and we are going to chat about art magic, the mysticism of Judaism, and what it means to be a Jew witch. Thanks for listening. Remember to share this with your friends, your crystal dealers, your geology professor, or whoever else you come in contact with today. Don't forget that I love you. I appreciate you. And until next time, be true, be you, be honest.